We're starting a, a new series uh, today. I think it's going to be about six weeks. It's a series on the Psalms. And um, so if you would stand with me, I'm going to give a little bit of introduction. But first, let's read God's word and we'll read Psalms 98. Psalms 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in a joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with the lyre, with the sound of melody, with trumpets and with the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. This is God's word. You may be seated. So for the, maybe a few visitors that are here, we just finished up the book of Genesis. And like I said, we're going to start a six-week uh, sermon series on the Psalms. Um, just to give you a little background on the Psalms before we jump right in, um, the Psalms are about 150 poems, Hebrew poems and songs and prayers. Um, there, ha- there are several different uh, composers of the Psalms. Uh, David himself wrote 73 of them. Uh, Asaph w- wrote 12. Solomon and Moses wrote a f- few, two or three. Um, but about 49 of them are anonymous. They're just uh, anonymous. We're not sure who the authors are, but there are numerous types of psalms. Um, like I said, within those 150, there's numerous types. There's psalms of lament, of just mourning and sadness. There's psalms of praise and thanksgiving. Um, there are the controversial and precatory psalms where you're calling down curses on your enemies. We will, we will get into that and talk some about that. Um, uh, the penitential psalms, which are just us being humble and confessing our sins to the Lord, psalms of confidence, and obviously there's lots of messianic psalms as, as well. Um, but many of the psalms were used in, in the choir in the temple uh, to sing worship. You can, you can look at that in First Chronicles 25 and Nehemiah 11. Uh, but it seems to be after the return from the exile in Babylon uh, that the Psalms were intentionally gathered and put into a particular order uh, that we had today. In other words, they were sort of arranged. And uh, if you didn't know this, the book of Psalms are basically sort of categorized in five books. Okay, So you have book one, which is um, chapters 3 to 41. Book two is 42 to 72. Then book three is 73 to 89, book 4 is 90 to 106, and then book 5 is 107 to 145. And if you look at those books, right towards the end of each of those books, it'll, it'll, it'll show it in your Bible if you look, there's this um, sort of this central theme, and this is what it says, may the Lord God of Israel be blessed forever, amen and amen. And so if you go to the end of each of those books, um, in, in the first one, it's in um, 41, verse 13. It says, May the Lord God of Israel be blessed forever and ever. Amen. And then as you come to the end of the Psalms, there's five Psalms at the very end, verses of Psalm, chapter 146 through 150. And they're all, these are the last five Psalms, all of them are about praise and thanksgiving. 
All of them are about worshiping God. All of them are about just praise and adoration to God. In fact, in all five of those, it starts with praise the Lord. And at the end of each of those chapters, it says praise the Lord. So there sort of seems to be this theme in the book of Psalms of praising and honoring God. But the unique thing about it is right in the middle of those last five chapters, chapter 148, verse 14, it says this, He has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all of his saints, of Israel and the people who are close to his heart. And so there's this idea that there's going to be a horn, there's going to be a Savior that would come. And we know from Luke chapter 1, verse 67, that that horn is Christ. And so there's this theme all throughout the Psalms that it's all about God, it's all about His glory, and it's all about praising Him and exalting Him and lifting Him up. And so you may ask, why, why all the fives? Why the five books? Why are the Psalms divided into the five books? Why do you have the last five Psalms just praising and adoration? Well, Psalms 1 and 2 are standalones. They don't, they don't fit into any of those books. In Psalms 1, it says this, How blessed is the man who meditates basically on the law day and night. And so there's five books in the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, there's five books in the law. And so the Psalms, it almost seems as though God gave them to us to say, Hey, look, this is sort of a new law to point you back to the first law. And it's almost like a prayer book that God has given us to say, Ryan, you're going to need to pray, and you're going to need to depend on me as you follow my law. You're going to need to fall on your knees before me if you're going to be able to keep my commandments. And so it's really interesting. Those five, that five-part organization sort of suggests that in the new, to- the new Torah, the new teaching of God's people, for them to practice a long life of prayer, striving to obey God is why he gave us the Psalms. But the neat thing is, is in chapter 2, Psalms chapter 2, God wants us to understand that's not our hope, okay? That obeying the law and keeping the law is not our hope. But our hope in Psalms 2, which is also a poetic reflection of 2 Samuel 7, is basically God's promise to David that one day he's going to send a messianic king that will save us from our enemies. And so as we look at Psalms, and as we think about the Psalms, think about it again as God's prayer book to his people, that we would pray and say, God, we need you. If we're going to be able to obey your commandments, if we're going to be able to keep your law, God, we're going to need you to be at work in our hearts. But God, that's not our hope. Our hope is in the horn. Our hope is in Christ and what he's done to save us. So I just wanted to give you a little background there. Uh, again, as you move through the Psalms, there's, there, there's, there's Psalms of Lament about the first three books. You know, I told you that Psalms are made up of five books. The first three are a lot about lamenting and mourning and sorrow. But as we move towards the end of Psalms, right, to the horn of our salvation, those Psalms become more about praise and thanksgiving. And, you know, that's the way our life should look. As we move to this world, right, there's going to be lots of lamenting and lots of sorrow and maybe even lots of suffering. But as we move towards the consummation of either going to be with Christ through death or either Christ's return, 
There's a joy and a praise in our heart that basically says, hey, listen, it's going to be all right. I'm, I'm going to make all things new. So the book of Psalms, the thing I like about it most is just the realness. There, there, there's like just an authentic peeling back, uncovering of our heart. You know, when you read the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Torah, you know, I, I think we, sometimes we can sort of miss it because it seems very rigid, you know, these laws, Leviticus, all that. And so God gives us Psalms to say, hey, look, it's time to get messy. The Psalms are very messy. It's about David crying out sometimes, God, where is your justice? God, all this wickedness is going on. Where is your justice in the world? And so as we move into the Psalms, I want you to see that it expresses joys and happiness and sorrow and brokenness. And, it, it, and like I said, it's just, this, it's just this book of small chapters that are really just all about life. And so I encourage you, if, if you want to spur on your prayer life, read the Psalms. If you want to understand more about this world, this broken world that we live in, and some of the tragedies and the hardships that we go through and some of the injustices and the brokenness, read the Psalms because they don't hold back. God doesn't hold back. He just peels back and says, look, I know life's messy. I know it's hard. And I know there's going to be some lamenting in all of our lives. But I want you to know one day the horn of salvation will come and there will be joy and happiness. So as we move into this, um, Psalms 98, I want you to also know that it's been a book to wrestle with, to wrestle with. C.S. Lewis really struggled with the book of Psalms, and the reason he struggled with it, and I'm going to read this to you in a minute, he struggled with it because he just couldn't understand. He almost viewed God as like this old washwoman that was just saying, like, praise me, praise me, I deserve praise, I deserve praise. And so he he just struggled through that. Like, why does this God who's all infinite and all surpassing, why does he need praise? And I'm going to read this to you. It's, it's, it's Lewis's thoughts. It says, Lewis had thought about praise of God and other things in terms of compliments and approval or honor. What had escaped his notice is the notion that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praises, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poem, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praising the weather, praising wine, praising dishes, praising the mountains. And it goes on and on and on. It says, we not only spontaneously praise what we value, but instinctively urge others to join our praise, rhetorically asking, isn't she lovely? Isn't she beautiful? Wasn't that glorious? Wasn't that meal magnificent? This unlocked the Psalms for Lewis. And enthusiastically imploring others to praise God was simply doing what all of us do when we enjoy and worship something. And here's the key, listen to this. Lewis came to see that in his previous difficulties with the concept of praise, he had failed to see. And what he had failed to see, that it, it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to us. This is a key point for Lewis. The command to praise is not just so that God can receive something, but it is bound up in the very giving of God of himself to his people. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? So when we come to the Psalms 
And God is calling, hey, Ryan, praise me, praise me. And as I praise God, and as I'm in worship of him, that's when he makes himself known to me and gives himself to me. But the beautiful thing about that is it's messy. Like I said, as, we, as you read the psalm, sometimes David is like, God, where are you? My enemies surround me. And then God shows up as David is engaging with God and worshiping God. And so as we move into this psalm here, it moves in and very, very quickly. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. At his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And so the psalmist is coming, and, and many times in the Old Testament, if p- p- God would do something great for his people, you know, they would write a song about it. That may be sort of strange to us, but if you really think about it, even in our culture, right, we have experiences and things that we enjoy, and people write songs about it. Well, that's what would happen in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. One example is Moses, after God had rescued the Israelites, after he had rescued them from Pharaoh and brought them out of captivity, Moses writes this song. Listen, and Moses and the Israelites sang this to God. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider have been hurled into the sea, and the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Listen to this. Your right hand was majestic in power, and your right hand has shattered the enemy. And so all throughout the Old Testament, David writes this one in 2 Samuel 22 where the Lord had rescued him from the hand of Saul. And so it was nothing new that God's people, when God would do wonderful things for them, that they would write a song. And in this song, they would invite others into the worship of God and all that he had done for them. A few weeks ago, before John Durkee and them left, we were, we, me and John were standing in the back Ben was preaching, it was before he had his knee, knee issue here, but we were standing back there, and, uh, and little Avery, you guys n- know Avery, um, you know, special needs little girl, but uh, during worship, she's just dancing. Y- y'all don't see it because you're all, but she's dancing from one side of the church to the back and just, just dancing, and John is standing there like this, and I've got my hands in my pocket, and it just sort of hit me. I just walked over to John, I said, I said, John, you you do know that that's probably what worship really looks like. That sort of makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? But that, that's true. Probably the dancing to the music that that little girl was doing, flailing her arms and bumping into people as they came in, that is probably more what worship is like among God's people in God's church than what we do sometimes. And so the psalmist here, he is exuberant about what God has done for him. And he is singing this song, and he is inviting others into this. And the question for us is, what does our worship, what does the way we worship God tell us about our hearts? What is the way that we view what God has done for us? What does that tell us about the nature of, in the depth of our hearts. The psalmist says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. You know, oftentimes the psalms, they won't, they're not written 
necessarily about a particular situation. And so this could have been about the exodus. It could have been about God rescuing Joshua and them in the midst of their enemies when they were taking the promised land. It could have been about the liberation of Babylon. I think God does that intentionally because as we come to the Lord, we can say, how many times has the Lord rescued us? How many times have God rescued us in the manner that he's rescued this particular psalmist? And so as we come to this passage tonight, I I want you to think about your own personal worship, like how we come before the Lord, and yet also think about our corporate worship, how we come before the Lord as a church, and what that says about our hearts. And one of the things that psalmist is very eager for us to understand is that this salvation doesn't come about, that this rescue doesn't come about by our own efforts. Like God doesn't look down and be like, David, you're giving some good efforts, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out right here. But it says that this rescue comes by God's right hand, that it comes by his holy arm that he has worked salvation. And so the psalmist wants us to understand that this is something that God is doing for his people. And that God does this not because we are deserving. In fact, Psalms 44.3 says, For by their sword they did not possess the land. And then Jeremiah 9.23 and 24 says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the mighty man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows the Lord who practices steadfast love. And so the psalmist is crying out and saying, God... You have rescued me so many times. And you have done these marvelous things for me. But you have done them not because of my efforts. But you have done them because of your righteous right arm. You have done them for your name's sake. And God's righteous right arm ought to point us to who? Who's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now? It's a picture pointing us to Christ. That God has not just rescued us by his righteous right arm, but God has rescued us by coming and dying for us. So think about this. This guy is this exuberant about God on this side of the cross. That God may have rescued him from Saul. God may have rescued him from Egypt. God, But in the cross we see that God rescued us by dying for us. How much more excitement and exuberance and joy should fill our hearts as we come to worship God on Sunday. God tells us in verse 3 that He has done this because He remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. That God did not do this because Israel was greater or smarter or more than receptive than others. That God rescued them just because of his mercy and goodness. We remember that same language as we looked at the life of Abraham, right? Why did God do what he did for Abraham? It was because of God's covenant love. It was because of God's covenant goodness. It was nothing that Abraham had done, right? Abraham messed it up in every way that you could mess it up. 
but it was because of God's steadfast love. So we too ought to burst forth into worship and praise as we think about Romans 1, 18 through 23, 32, right? When we think about the fact that we are the ones that suppress the truth, that we are the one that exchange God's truth for a lie, that we are the ones that are natural rebellious, that we are the ones that give hearty approval to rebellion against God. But God doesn't strike us. He rescues us from our enemy. He rescues us from our sin. And so we too should burst forth with the psalmist and cry out with a new song every day, right? Every day there's reason for me to write a song to the Lord. Every day there's reason just in generally, even if it's for the general provisions of God of food and clothes and shelter, but even much more than that, there's a salvation that comes not by works and not by repetition and not by sweat or the calluses from my hands, but there's a salvation that comes from the Lord that is because of His loving grace. Think about that. That's a cool drink of water in a desert of striving, isn't it? Think about the message that we have to give the nations that you don't have to strive and save yourself. But there's a God by His grace and goodness and His steadfast love that has died on your behalf and all you have to do is open your hands and receive it. If you look at verse 2, God tells us that this salvation has been brought to us that the Lord has made known His salvation, not just for us. A lot of times we think that our salvation is about us, but it's really not. It says, the Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. It says in verse 3b, it says, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so just like Abraham, even though God had covenanted with Abraham, who benefited? Lot benefited. So many others benefited because of God's relationship with Abraham. And the same is true for us. That the beneficiaries of God's covenant is not just us, but the beneficiaries of God's covenant are those around us that we interact with every day. That in interacting with them, that they get to experience the presence of God in our presence. They get to experience God's love and kindness through our hands and feet. And so the covenant that even this psalmist is singing about is a covenant for the nations. And at that time it was just the Jews, but remember what God told the Jews. The covenant that He had made with Israel was for the benefit of the nations, was for the benefit of the Gentiles. And so even in our hearts and our lives, there's a wonderful picture of this. And it's found in Ezekiel 47, and it's this picture and the picture is this. The picture is the temple is there. And remember, who is the temple of God now? 
right? And there's this picture of this temple, and there's water flowing out from the temple, and the water begins to flow out from the temple, and as it gets out a little bit further, it's about two feet deep. And it goes out a little further, and it's about ten feet deep. And then it goes out a little further, and it just keeps going out, and this river keeps getting bigger and bigger until it just turns into a massive river. And it's a picture of God's Spirit and God's presence. And this river flows into the sea, and it turns the sea fresh water. And basically it says that the, it, it just brings healing to the waters and healing everywhere it goes. And all of creation is affected by this presence and this water flowing out from the temple. It just brings healing wherever it goes. Do you know that's who you are, Christian? Do you know that's a picture of your life? Do you know that's a picture of my life because God has coveted with me and made a covenant with me that I am now that temple that the Spirit of God flows out of so that if I'm with my enemies or I'm with my in-laws or I'm with my parents, or I'm with my friends, or I'm with my co-workers, that they benefit. They benefit because of this steadfast love that God has filled me with. Abraham's benefit, Israel benefits, the church benefits, but we benefit for the benefit of others. God doesn't just save us just for our own sakes. And so our relationship with God is for the benefit of the nations. You know, one of the reasons I don't think that we engage in worship the way the psalmist does. I mean, when you, when you, when you just start reading through the psalms, the way, they, the, way the psalmist praises and honors God it's just amazing. And I think the reason that personally that I don't worship God in that way is because I'm not willing to sit in my brokenness. I, I'm not really willing to sit and realize, you know what, I, I, I've been in slavery 400 years. Like I don't view my sin like that. I don't, I don't view my brokenness like that. Right? I, I just think I need a little medical help or take a little medicine here or there. But if I really just take time to sit in my own sin, in my own brokenness, what happens when someone shows up and rescues me from that? Worship. Worship. I mean, that's, that's where these songs come from, right? Moses... Pharaoh and all of his army are after him. They're about to slaughter the whole nation of Israel. A million people, they're going to kill them all. And God does this miraculous, marvelous rescue. No one had to convince Moses of how lost and hopeless he was. Right? When you start leading a million people through a desert with no water, and you come to an ocean and there's an army behind you, no one has to convince you, hey, listen, there's no other hope for you. But sometimes as Christians, we forget that. We forget that sin is so much bigger than Pharaoh. That sin is so much bigger than Saul was after David. 
And so I want to encourage you. I know it sounds crazy, but sit in your brokenness. Like, don't try to cover it up with wealth and riches and try to make out like, we all know we're a mess. So sit in your mess for a little while and then realize what Christ has done for you. And worship will change. Worship will change. Verse 4 through 6 just heightens. Worship just heightens. And it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. And basically he goes on and on. It's like, grab your guitar, grab your drums, gra- grab everything you can grab and just make noises and worship the Lord. I mean, it's like, it's just like, he just went it to another level. Come, I'm writing a new song. about. Now look, get every instrument you can and just start worshiping God. You know, one of the privileges that we have as a church and as God's people is that we're in missional partnership with God. And one of the big mistakes that I think that we make as Christians is we try to formulate all these plans about how we can reach people with the gospel. And we come up with all these strategies. But you know when the nations will be reached? When God's people worship Him in the manner that we see in this psalm. When the world sees God's church worshiping like this, God's grace becomes a reality to them. They're like, whoa, those people have something that we don't have. But oftentimes, in the book of Acts, if you try to pull a strategy, there's no strategy in Acts. God's people were were enamored with His love and His goodness and His rescue of them. And, And because of that, they just flooded out to the world and started saying, hey, look, come Come and see our God. Come and see our Savior. Come and see our Lord. Come and see God's steadfast love. And His people would come and they would see these four, five, six thousand people gathered and just worshiping together around God's Word and around God's table. And they were, they were people from all different walks of life. They understood the reality of God. And so our greatest missional strategy is the worship of God. You know, one of the things that, especially in our world today, and, you know, and the church has, has really almost gone the other way as far as, like, the environment and global warming and taking care of the earth and stuff. That, those are good things. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We as God's people ought to be taking care of the planet. We ought to be recycling. We ought to be doing those things. But a lot of times we we pull away because there may be extremes to that. But one of the things that I want you to see in this passage in verse 7 through 9, listen to this. When humanity aligns itself in worship of God. You know what happens to creation? Listen. Let the sea roar in all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth, and He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in equity. 
when humanity aligns itself with the throne room of God and bends its knee to the king, then not only will all humanity flourish, but all of creation. All of creation flourish. When the human race is made new, creation is made right. Romans 8, 18-23, which we read, tells us this. And the psalmist wants us to know that the problem of the human race is the problem of the human heart. And that ever since the fall, ever since Adam misaligned himself with God, the creation has been groaning ever since. And so though we do need to recycle and we do need to take care of planet Earth, the way that our creation will benefit is when we worship God in spirit and in truth. When we see God for who He is, we see what He has done for us, and we bend the knee to Him and say, God, You are so good and so compassionate and so gracious. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? I, I have no idea what that will be like when all of creation is made new. When the new heaven and the new earth come down and everything is made right. Like, I don't know what the animals will do. I don't know if they stand up and start, you know, pumping their... I don't know what they do, but it says here that all of creation... Cla- I mean, that it, we, we can't even imagine what it was like. Worship is the place where we gain the most insight into who we are and what we believe about God. Worship is the place where we gain the most clarity about what we believe about God's steadfast love. So I want to ask you again, church, what does your worship tell you about your God and what He has done for you? What does my worship tell me about the God that I say I believe and raises life up from the dead? Let's pray. God, as we read the Psalms, God, some of us will grow discouraged and God, maybe even self-condemning and that's not the reason you give us the Psalms. God, the Psalms are given to us to encourage us to align our hearts with the living God. The Psalms are giving to us to remind us that when we can't keep the law, when we can't keep the Torah, when we can't keep the commandments, that there is a horn that God has raised up and He has kept the law on our behalf. God, the Psalms are given to us to show us the steadfast love of the Lord. The Psalms are given to us so that we will sit in our brokenness and God, that we can honestly talk about the brokenness in our world, but God, we don't talk about it in a hopeless way. God, we're not hopeless. We lament and we mourn and we cry when things are broken, when we lose loved ones, and when injustices happen. But God, we are not hopeless because we have a king and we have a God who rescues And He rescues God, not by telling us to get it together. He rescues by coming and pouring out His blood upon the cross. He come and became one of us. 
And God, I pray that we would understand how deep and how wide and how long that love is that you have for us. God, even as we continue in worship and song, God, I pray that your spirit would come. And I pray that as we have sit and take time to sit in the brokenness of who we are, that we would realize how good God is. And we would sing hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we continue?